With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Texas Sports Nation podcast. I'm Greg Rogen with the Houston Chronicle. In case you've been living under a rock the past week, my co-host John McClain retired after 47 years at the Chronicle last week. So we're going to try something new from now on with the podcast, bring in different guests. And with the Astros season starting Thursday, I thought there would be no better guest to bring in than Brian McTaggart, longtime Astros beat writer. He's with MLB.com. He's also a Houston Chronicle and Houston Post alumnus. And uh, Brian, thanks very much for uh, taking the time to talk to us today. Yeah, thanks, Greg. What an honor to uh, follow the general, huh? What are we going to call you? Like the uh, what are we, the lieutenant or uh, yeah. corporal or? I'll stick with private for now. So. Private, okay, all right. As you were, your nineteenth opening day covering the Astros. Does does it really seem like nineteen years? Yeah, kind of yes and no. I mean, it seems like it's gone by very fast. But when I look back at uh, you know when I started covering the beat where the franchise was, the players were on the team. That was the the 04 team, they had just signed Pettit and Clemens, Phil Garner. Uh, Jimmy Williams was the manager, not even Phil Garner. And so, uh, man, that seems like a lifetime ago. I mean, ba- ba- uh, Bijan and Bagwell were on that team, and those guys are over the, uh, over 50 now, uh, pushing 60 years old. So you look at it in those terms, and, man, it's been a, been a long time. Uh, I like to tell people I've seen a little bit of everything on the Astros beat. You know, 100 losses, 100 wins, uh, changed leagues, changed uniforms, changed spring training sites. Um, nailed some number one overall picks, uh, missed on some others. So, uh, uh, and a sign stealing scandal. So there's been a little bit of everything covering the Astros the past 19 years. I was going to say, you have been witness to many Astros eras. Cause you talk about that first year, that year you came on the beat 2004, that was your Roger Clemens and Andy Pettit arrived. Jeff Kent was already here. It's the tail end of the Bagwell Biggio era. They trade for Car- a young Carlos Beltran that season. And, uh, they make two deep playoff runs in 2004 and then 2005, they make it to the world series. You might, I'm sure you might be thinking, wow, this is going to be a, I'm going to be working into October for a long time here. And then they don't make the playoffs again for nine years. And then you have, like you said, the rebuilding. And when you, when you look at the Astros, I guess from a macro perspective, do you think even though they're entering, they played 60 seasons, do you think there's still a young franchise in the minds of many baseball fans? Cause they really haven't come into prominence until the last maybe eight to 10 years. Yeah, I can definitely see that. I mean, they, they have a little uh, dip your foot in the water, see what it's like successes here and there, you know, with 80 and 86. And then even in the late nineties, they were winning the divisions, but just could not get past the Braves. And then the, the Padres that one year. And it, it seemed like they really cleared a hurdle in 04 and 05 winning a playoff series for the first time. I mean, they had one, you know, fans in Houston are spoiled right now. The Astros are going to the ALCS every year. They hadn't won a playoff series until 2004. I mean, this is pretty hard to, when you look back on it, imagine that. But they just could not get past the first round of the playoffs. Of course, in 80 and 86, there was one round before the World Series, and they lost those. But, um, 
But it's also a franchise with some great history. I mean, if you look at the all the great players that have played for the Astros, some even guys that went on the star for other teams like Joe Morgan, just some incredible names through the years. But, um, you know, people call this the golden era right now. I mean, I would have to agree. I mean, they five consecutive ALCS. They've been to the playoffs every year, but once since 2015. And it looks like this year they're, they're poised to win another division. So um, fans that are coming up and just becoming Astros fans are really, really spoiled right now because it wasn't always this way if you, if you followed this team in the 70s and 80s. That's for sure. And going past the Astros, would you say it's the best era for any Houston sports franchise period? To this 2015 to now time with the Astros? Yeah, I mean, maybe the, the early, mid-90s Rockets that go in the playoffs every year and then made a deep run and you know, early nineties and finally won a couple of championships, um, you know, had another deep run in 97. That's probably the only thing I think that can compare. I mean, the Oilers just couldn't get it done. I mean, they went to the playoffs seven years in a row in the, in the late eighties, the run and shoot Oilers, but that was more heartbreak than celebration year after year. So I think it's close with the, the current Astros and then the, the nineties Rockets. They did nineties Rockets did win two championships. Um, and that was, uh, you know, maybe that puts it over the top, but you know, the Astros are right there with them, I think for sure. When I worked in Corpus Christi covering the uh, Astros double affiliate, the hooks, I saw guys like Jose Altuve, George Springer come through. You could see the talent. When you watch these guys, say the 2013, 2014 seasons, could you see the potential there then? Or did it really not become evident until maybe 2015, 2016 or so what these guys could do? Yeah, it wasn't evident until a little bit later. I mean, the 2013 team had the I think the $13 million payroll, there were probably very few players on that roster that could have played for other teams. Altuve had been up by then and he was mashing, but you were still wondering, you know, what is the deal with this guy? You know, is this for real? He's, you know, he's, you know, he made the all-star team in, you know, what, 2013, maybe they had, you know, Bud Norris as their ace. He was, uh, you know, was pretty good starting pitcher, but not ace material. Um, but you just knew that the minor leagues was where it's at. And that's all you heard, I think, as Astros fans from from Jeff Luna. I mean, they they stripped the team down and the fans were so programmed to focus on the minor leagues. That's where the prospects are at. That's where, you know, Correa is at and then Springer and um, Bregman and all these other guys. And and slowly but surely, each one of these guys came up. And I, I think when Springer came up, that sort of was like a, you know, turning of the battleship a little bit. It pointed in the other direction that, okay, this team is now headed to um, a place where maybe it can contend. And then uh, then Correa and then and Bregman. Um, and then next thing you know, they have a, a star-studded infield. Then now they're signing free agents that they hadn't done that in years. They're signing some guys now that can help them. Then they're making big-time trades, and all of a sudden the, the whole plan came together. But yeah, you look at 2013 and, you know, rebuilding, there's no doubt the Astros, you know, three consecutive hundred lost seasons. That was that was tough to take if you're an Astros fan. And I guess maybe now looking back 10 years later, I, I guess you can say it was all worth it. You know, in hindsight, it's an infamous trade. But at the time, the Carlos Gomez, Mike Fires trade with the Brewers, was that the sign that the Astros were really going for it as far as, you know, aiming for a playoff spot in that 2015 season when they seem to, you know, surprise people and come onto the scene? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, Fires have been a, a pretty, pretty good pitcher for them. I mean, he was in the middle of the rotation and, uh, um, but uh, to get him and, and Gomez and they traded away some young up and coming, what I thought were going to be some star players that, you know, probably didn't materialize as much. Although, you know, you look at Josh Hader and, 
Um, say what you will about Brett Phillips, but um, to trade away prospects and get a couple of veteran players that can help you, that's just stuff that they hadn't really done before. They were on the opposite end of that. They were trading away prospects left and right. And Gomez turned out to be a disaster and fires. Well, you know, label him what you want to label him. But, uh, you know, he did lead the team in innings pitched in 2017, the year they won the World Series. But, yeah, that was that was the, the sign, uh, I think, that that uh, they had, they were on the other side of the table now. They were going to be one of the big boys giving up their prospects, and they did a lot of that too over the years. I, I mean, ironically, they trade away Josh Hader, and that's the component that they've never had all these years was that lefty in the bullpen. And he would have he would have filled a nice niche in that bullpen, but of course, I mean, that's a big what if. You wrote a book about the Astros, that 100 Things Astros Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. It came out in 2016. With everything that's happened with the Astros since then, how many chapters have you revised, tossed out, put in since then? Or, I mean, or will you do in, in the coming years? Yeah, I've thought about that. I've actually updated it once. After they won the World Series, the publisher was like, look, we need to get this back out. So we stripped out five chapters. We put in five new chapters all all around the 2017 team. I put in a chapter on Alex Bregman, who really wasn't mentioned in the first book because I wrote it in 2015. But I, you know, I don't think there's any plans for another book. But yeah, if you're right, if I was gonna if I was gonna update this again, uh, I would probably just need to write a sequel because so much stuff has happened since then with the sign stealing and um, the fallout from that, and then going going back to the playoffs and almost winning a couple World Series again. The, the COVID stuff it's it's been uh it's been unbelievable, and I know there's been a couple of books written on that stuff, and I think at least one more is set to come out. So uh, that's that's being covered pretty well. But yeah, if I was doing that book now, I think it'd be a little more overwhelming just with everything that's gone on in the last just five years since it came out. It's uh, been no shortage of big storylines on the Astros. I'm curious from start to finish, how long did it take to do that book? Well, I signed the contract to do that in March of 2015, and the manuscript was due, I think, September, end of September 2015. And I was like, well, great. Astros won't be in the playoffs. I can kind of coast through September if I need to finish this. And so I was a little bit late in getting started. I'm a little bit of a procrastinator. And so um, I got an email from the publisher that said, your manuscript's due in four months. And I hadn't really started yet. So I was like, "Uh oh, but I did a lot of interviews over the summer going to uh, Cooperstown for the Hall of Fame. A lot of ex-Astros were there, did a lot of interviews. And then uh, in the second half of the baseball season, I I did a lot of the writing. I interviewed, I think, 50 to 60 people for the book. Um, Transcribing, of course, was the worst part of it. The writing was the fun part. And then when late September came and the Astros are pushing for the playoffs and I'm all of a sudden um, swamped with Astros stuff at work and I have a book, and the Astros season was still unknown. I said, you know, we're going to have to cover this Astros season in the book. So they pushed the manuscript back a couple of weeks. I was able to file it shortly after they lost to the uh, the Royals. But all in all, it probably took me, uh, you know, four or five months, you know, maybe uh, two months of uh, intense writing pretty much every day. You asked Chandler Rome. He had a front row seat because he was my intern when I, uh, that season for MLB.com. And there were games to where... I would say, okay, you handle the game coverage tonight. I'll do pregame. And then I would sit there and pound on the book the entire game. And he was wondering, what the heck am I working on? So um, he now knows I was working on that book. So uh, a little bit of assist to Chandler Rome on that. I did not know that. It's very interesting. Um, So Brian, you and I have known each other a long time. First, First time I've actually interviewed you. So this is kind of a weird feeling, but you have a fascinating personal story. I'm not sure a lot of people know about it. It's kind of, with your family. It's kind of the quintessential American dream. You immigrated here from Scotland 
at age four with your family. So what do you remember about that? And what was, what was that like, that culture shock moving from Scotland to the Houston suburbs in the 1970s? I'm guessing this would have been a little pre-urban cowboy era, Houston. Yeah, 1975, urban Wright City, Pasadena, urban cowboy. So we, we weren't too far from Gillies, but um, I don't have a lot of memories. Um, uh, I guess I was four and a half when we moved here. It was, it was May 12, 1975. I remember the date. I don't have a lot of memories about being in Scotland. I do have some that um, of some vague memories of a kid in Scotland, but I do remember uh, we uh, we moved here and my uh, my aunt had lived here. She was much older than my mother, but it was her sister. And so she'd sort of she wanted my grandparents to come over and they said, well, you know, we're too old. What about your sister and their young family? And my my mother had never met her sister. They had never met because by the time my mother was born, uh, the sister was out of the house. And then she ended up living in uh, coming to the United States in the 50s. So um, long story short, we came over instead with three kids and uh you know, I think my parents had $200 saved up and that was it. So we stayed with her. But my aunt told the story many times of uh, the first morning I woke up that, uh, you know, we were all piled in one room. And um, I, I sat up and said, I'm a Texan now. And so, you know, I've been a, a Texan ever since. But there was uh, you know, it was a little bit easier for me than my parents. My parents both had thick accent, accents. My mom was born and raised in Scotland. My dad was born and raised in Ireland. So my dad had a really thick Irish brogue. They had to kind of go out and get jobs. They didn't, you know, they were out of school by the time they were 13 or 14 because they had to work for big families. So they didn't have a lot of skills. So it was hard on them. And even my older brother and sister, they had accents and they were, uh, they went to school and were thrown in school and, you know, second grade or fifth grade or whatever it was um, and try to learn. For me, I hadn't even started kindergarten yet. So I was sort of, uh, I was sort of eased into it more than they were. But a funny story, like when we were kids and, we would go to get some food at fast food or whatever. I would order from the back seat because the, the people could not understand what my parents were saying. So if we went through Wendy's, we would get 20 hamburgers because my mom, they could not understand my mother. So it got to the point I would just order from the back seat because I, I was the only one without an accent. And, uh, and so I, I did a, I did a lot of, I did a lot of talking for my parents through the years just because uh, people couldn't understand what they were saying, even over the phone, they would hand the phone to me. So, uh, but, you know, even though we, everyone spoke English, it was still there was still a culture barrier. It's still uh, accent barrier. It was it was a little difficult for them, I'm sure. I can definitely empathize because my parents are immigrants, too. And I had to do kind of the same thing as far as ordering at restaurants or, you know, yeah. saying clearing something up on the phone. So very, uh, very common experience there. How'd you get into sports, the Houston sports scene as a kid? Yeah, my dad was a huge sports fan and a huge soccer fan in Ireland and Scotland, and he loved soccer. And I, you know, the minute we got here, he signed me up to play soccer. But we would—he uh, didn't know much about the sports over here, but he watched. So he would always have football on and baseball on and basketball, and we sort of watched together and learned together, um, kind of learning the game. And you know, he—he he didn't know much about the games. And you know, next thing we know, we're getting in in the car and driving to the Astrodome, which was only you know seven eight miles away. Um, and then seeing the game in person and, you know, you, you walk in the Astrodome and you look up and you're like, wow, this is amazing. And, you know, next thing I know, I'm 10 years old and I'm, I'm, you know, crying when the Astros lose to the, uh, the Phillies in the playoffs and the Rockets lose the finals. And man, next thing I know, I'm a, I'm a Houston sports fan. And, uh, it just developed from there. I mean, it was just what I did for fun. Um, people went to Astroworld. I did that a lot, but I would rather go to the Astrodome and watch the Astros and, 
um, when I was just got out of high school, I got a job working the scoreboard at the Astrodome. So I was getting paid $20 a game to work the scoreboard. Um, and I thought it was the greatest job in the world just because I was probably going to go to those games anyway as a fan. And now I'm getting paid to go to those games. And um, it just went on from there and met more people and got more involved. And, uh, and yeah, just uh, I don't know, it's just it's probably credit to my dad. We just we just watch games together and and uh, he learned the game and I learned it from him. And, and we just grew up watching it together. How did sports journalism uh, become your pathway to a career? Well, I wanted to be in broadcasting because I love to listen to Gene Peterson and Milo Hamilton and the Oilers broadcast. And I was like, man, I want to do something like that. So that was kind of my goal. But I was working the scoreboard at the Astrodome and I'd started going to U of H for a broadcasting degree. Um, but I met some people when I was at the Astrodome, uh, the sports editor for the Houston uh, Post at the time, Ivy McLemore, who said, you know, if you once baseball's over, if you want to come work for us in the fall, take high school football scores um, over the phone on Fridays, make, you know, pay you 50 bucks and uh, maybe you can do it on Saturdays as well. So I was like, yeah, that sounds fun. So I started doing that. Um, he had me come back and do that the next year. I mean, I was still at school at the time. And then one day out of the blue, one of the editors came and said, uh, we need a story on Jersey Village girls basketball. Do you think you can write it? And I was like, um, well, I have no training. And I'm saying this in my head. I have no training. I, you know, I'd only read the paper. I'd never written much. So I was like, yeah, I can do it. And so um, went out to Jersey Village High School, wrote a story, which ended up appearing on the front page of the post sports section, which was a great thrill. I think I was 20 years old at the time. And so I'm, next thing you know, I'm writing stories for the Houston Post and I'm way ahead of anything I was doing broadcasting wise. So it was pretty clear that, you know, that and I, lo- I liked it, too. I mean, it was pretty clear that was going to be a path for me. And so uh, I did graduate with a broadcasting degree. But by the time I graduated, I was pretty much working full time for the Houston Post. And that's just sort of uh, the career arc it took me to. Obviously, you were at the Post and then the Post folded, went to the Chronicle. You covered high school sports. I, I like to tell people that if you can cover high school sports, you can really cover anything. anything yeah. How important was that for your career just to have that experience covering high school sports? And how did that prepare you for like other beats that you had, wh- whether it was Rice or the Astros First of all, like there was no internet back then. So I kept my own stats. I was my own play-by-play guy, my own spotter. Um, you didn't always have a place in the press box. You're talking about small press boxes. I sat in the stands for basketball games, baseball games, and kept kept score. You know, after the game, there's no press conferences. There's no SIDs. You have to go down to the field and grab the people that you wanted. Um, you get locked in press boxes and because – you know, people aren't used to you being there. So they shut the lights out and lock the doors and, you know, you're still working on your story and you're stuck in the Deer Park High School press box. So you just learned a lot about perseverance and then um, learned a lot about how to get stories, about how to approach people, talk to people. You really had to dig for everything. You want to know, you know, I had to put together high school basketball rankings. I had to call every coach on a Sunday night. I would make 30, 40 calls and talk to the coaches. I'm like, well, who did you play this week? Did you win or lose? And just, uh, I, be- I became like, uh, uh, I guess the way I, I, I just became numb to making phone calls. I didn't care who I called, what time of night. Uh, I didn't care if they got mad at me. I had to call and, and get these answers. So it sort of helped me be a reporter a little bit. And then, you know, when I got put on rice, um, it was, it was wonderful because they keep stats for you. It's, uh, there's a press box seat with your name on it. You you can connect to the phone. You don't have to go to Walgreens or 7-Eleven and beg to use their phone to file the story or, 
or stand at you know a payphone in the woodlands with these couplers and it's raining and you're trying to get that story in. So um, I really appreciated, um, I guess, the luxuries of covering college sports and then professional sports. And um, and then when the internet came out, it, it made it even that much easier. Everything's at your fingertips because we didn't have that. I had to come in and update the standings every Monday at the Chronicle uh, of, of every high school sport, update the stats by hand. Yeah, I'm pretty sure all that's done probably a lot easier than it was nowadays. It just made me appreciate um, just working that hard and then being able to uh, have that stuff handed to you when you're covering pros and colleges. What would be the most memorable non-Astros event that you covered? Wow. Um, there's probably a couple. Uh, the Daytona 500 I covered for the Chronicle in 05, uh, which I didn't know much about NASCAR, but I went down there and I was blown away by it. It was an amazing event to cover to stand on the track at Daytona the day of the race. And then um, to hear those cars go around that track, it was, it was pretty amazing. You know, the little league world series, I covered twice. The first time was 2000, the team from Bel Air went up there. And so that summer I went to cover the little league world series. And again, I was blown away by that. Uh, the team from Bel Air went all the way to the finals. And, and what stands out to me is on Saturday, or was it Sunday? I can't remember on the day that the championship uh, I was told to get there really early because there was going to be 40,000 people, which I couldn't believe this was such a tiny town. So I got there really early and the, there's a big hill that I'm sure people that have ever seen the little league world series are familiar with. There was a big hill and it was covered in blankets. This was hours before the game. People had staked their claim to spots. So it looked like a giant quilt. And then by the time the game started, that hill was packed with people. And I think there was 30,000 people at the game that day to watch little leaguers play and that was really that was really something, and uh, just that whole event, and just what those kids go through, and you know everyone comes and watches them play. That was a lot of fun. Covered a Super Bowl, you know, got to be at the top of the list. Super Bowl thirty eight for the Chronicle. That was fun as well. Um, covered some bowl games. Uh, covered the College World Series. You know, Rice winning the College World Series in 03 was a lot of fun. So I got a chance to do some really really cool stuff at the Chronicle, and um, you know stuff. You know, I have great memories of covering those events. What is the Astros moment that really sticks out to you? It, would it surprise you if I asked you, is it the Pujols homer? That sticks out. I mean, I think clinching the World Series sticks out for me. And I, I just remember is that I had a story ready to go. And I remember is that ninth, the, the bottom of the ninth inning started and, it, you know, they're up five to one. I just kind of took a moment to kind of appreciate what I was seeing. I mean, you become a writer and, you, you know, your fandom goes out the window. You know, it doesn't matter to me if the Astros win or lose. But, I, you know, I had watched this franchise play for 30 years and I was just thinking of, man, they've all this all this franchise is going through and they're about to do it right here. And I, I just sort of watched the last three outs and, and just soaked it in. And then once the celebration was over for a little bit, I went to work. But that was just really a, just a, a, to be – to be there and be able to witness it. And, uh, you know, from the seat that I had, you know, it was just a, it was just a privilege. And um, then to be able to cover it and, and be close to some of those players and coaches, um, you know, that, I think that was the moment that stands out. On the flip side, what was it like witnessing the Howie Kendrick Homer in 2019? Have you ever heard Minute Maid Park that silent? No. Well, the only time was when there was no fans and they were playing, you know, in 2020. But yeah, to to hear that ball clank off the foul pole because I, I thought, I thought they were going to win. I mean, I thought Will Harris gets a, an out or two and then Garrett Cole comes in and Garrett Cole comes in. This is over. And Will Harris was really, really good. 
And this was a guy that I thought he was going to get out. And the last thing I think anyone expected was a home run. Um, it was really stunning, um, you know, just just to hear that third base dugout erupt and the rest of the ballpark is quiet. Probably similar to the Pujols homer. I think the Pujols homer was a little more stunning just because they were a strike away and he hit it so far. And it was just, uh, you know, everyone was just in, in disbelief. You, you know, the camera pans to Andy Pettit and he's like, oh, my gosh. You know, he couldn't believe it. I don't think anyone could believe it. But uh, the the uh, Kendrick homer is is pretty close to that. But the Pujols homer, just the, the majesty of it, how far it was hit. Um, that was pretty incredible. Obviously, the Astros have a taint, you know, on their legacy for this run because of the sign stealing scandal. How differently are they perceived if they had won the 2019 World Series? And MLB has already said there was no cheating going on that season. Do people have a different perception of the Astros or is that scarlet letter always going to be on them? Yeah, I don't think they do. I mean, I, I think the fact they've been to a couple of World Series since then you know, is that going to sway people? I don't know. People are always going to say, okay, well, 2017, you did this. And, you know, we're going to be skeptical of 2019 too. We just don't trust you. And, you know, maybe they brought that on themselves. I mean, they did do it. They admitted they did it. But you look at some of the stuff that's come out the last few days and uh, Chris Sale saying that everybody was doing it. And I, I, I fully believe the Astros weren't the only one. The big difference was they had a player who was on that team come out and put his name on it. That's the big difference. You know, if any other team does that, it blows up as well, but um, maybe they've earned a little more credibility because they just keep winning and keep coming back. But there's going to be fans, Yankees fans, Red Sox fans that are always going to doubt what the Astros do. And that's part of fandom. You know, they're rivals now and they stink and I don't trust you. And um, that's just the way it is. But it will be interesting to hear as they go around this year, are the boos going to subside now? Are they not going to be as loud just because we're another year removed from it? <clears throat> There's way more important things that have gone on in the game and in life. People are happy to have baseball back. But uh, I think no matter where the 2017 Astros go, it's always going to be hanging over their heads. Interesting. You started covering this team in 2004. How much has social media changed the way you do your job? Yeah, big time. I mean, you look in a press box and everybody's on Twitter and that's just sort of where everyone gets their information from first. It seems like, you know, back back in the day, um, there was Internet. There wasn't really social media. So I think the Chronicle website updated like at, at midnight or something. So when I, I sent in a story, you had to wait till midnight for this, the whole website to refresh and update. And it was like that with other sites as well. Now you know immediately what other people are writing or doing. And back when I started in the business, it was like you had to wait till the next morning till the paper came out. You had no idea what the Chronicle was reporting. I mean, did the, if you had a story, you had to wait until it hits your driveway at 6 a.m. Did they have it? Oh, no, they didn't. Well, now everyone knows immediately. And you're able to follow and react and move the ball forward immediately on the stories as well. Um, but I love Twitter and also hate Twitter just, just because – I feel that we're tethered to it at times, but uh, like it or not, that's uh, so many people get their news and their sports information off Twitter. And it's really a, a vital part of what we do. You know, in, in 2004, you didn't get that instantaneous feedback that you stink. Somebody would actually actually have to send you an email or God forbid, a letter to the editor. You know, now it's like, you know, it's just you just I can only imagine what your mentions are like during an Astros game, especially, you know, during the playoffs or something. I assume at some point you just got to like turn it off and not pay attention to it. Yeah, totally. Uh, you know, it depends. It, it goes in waves. The mentions blow up sometimes. If, if you know, if the Astros are hot or it's a big game, you know, t Twitter's a can be a fun place to be. But um, 
you know, fans take out their frustrations on a lot of people, including me sometimes. But, uh, um, you know, they don't like me pointing out the facts that, okay, the Astros have lost five in a row. Like it or not, that's the way it is. So you kind of have to deal with it. But, um, but uh, I'm, I'm like most people. Yeah, I'm a U of H fan. So I, I get I get on Twitter and follow all these people that cover UH. And so I'm on the other end of it, too. And I, I love if, you know, when people are tweeting about UH and tweeting news because I, I just can't get enough of it. So. Um, I got to think that, you know, Astros fans are the same way. You talked earlier about, you know, checking your fandom at the door when, when you, when you do this job and you, you're always quick to point out on Twitter that you're not, you're not here to be a cheerleader, you know, you're objective. How hard is, I mean, it's not hard for you to do that, but like in this media sphere now you have so many, I'm not saying they're, they're fans masquerading as journalists, but there's a lot of people now who, who are open about their fandom. Does that help or hurt, you know, in your opinion? Well, I think it hurts. It hurts guys like me who are, you know, trying to be straightforward reporters. And I mean, it, it's true. I mean, it, it, and Astros fans don't like to hear it. it doesn't matter to me if they win or lose. I mean, it, it, it does not. I mean, I like a good game, a compelling story. But if the Astros miss the playoffs this year, uh, you know, I'll uh, I won't cover the playoffs. It'll, it'll be fine. There's going to be some good stories coming out of that as well. But it's, it's amazing to me how how some fans just don't understand that. And they expect me to be um, a cheerleader along with them. I don't know why they would want that from their Astros coverage. Why would you want, you know, a fan covering the team? You want somebody who's uh, objective and somebody who, uh, you know, looks at it maybe from a different point of view. I'll never forget on, I, I tweeted a few years ago, something about the Astros winning a winning streak or whatever. And this guy took exception that I didn't put an exclamation point after my sentence that they won. I was like, what difference does that make? I mean, I, I'm not excited that they won. I'm just telling you that they won. That's all I do is tell you what happened. It's up to you to react and be a fan. And if that's what you want to do, great. I mean, that's what you should do. But, you know, don't expect me to be one along with you. That's just not my job. I'm going to close with this. If you look into your crystal ball for the 2022 Astros, what do you see? I mean, I think they'll win the division. I mean, I think they're clearly the best team in the division. And the thing is, I, I think if they're in a position to contend, I think they'll go out and make a move at the trade deadline. They have some flexibility to do that. Maybe, you know, add a, a bat if center field isn't working out. Maybe add another pitcher. They haven't been shy about doing that. And I, I think they'll be one of the teams to beat in the American League. It's, it's hard to say what happens in the playoffs. I mean, Toronto's really good. The Yankees are going to be there. Red Sox are going to be there. I think the White Sox are going to be really good again. I mean, it's really a, a deep field in the American League. But, um, you know, I, I think the Astros are going to give it a run. I, I it, You know, do they win the, the AL again? You know, I don't know. I, right now, I, I'd probably say it's 50-50. But um, they're going to be in the mix, and they're going to win the division. I'd be stunned if they didn't win the division and um, have another run in October. I lied. I got one more question. Will Carlos Correa finish the season as, as a Minnesota twin, or will he be traded at the deadline? <laughs> Uh, oh, it's a good one. Um, I'll say he finishes. I don't think he'll be a twin next year. And we've already seen the twins have moved back opening day a day because it's so cold. So uh, <laughs> Carlos is getting a real indoctrination into the uh, the great white north and the weather. But uh, I, I mean, I think the twins are, you know, could probably hang around long enough. They're, the thing with the playoffs expanding, you're going to have two thirds of the teams at least in contention in the month of uh, September. So I think the twins could probably be one of those teams. And um, so I think they'll keep Carlos and, and, uh, but I, I certainly think he's probably going to be on the market again. He's going to opt out. And then uh, who knows, maybe he comes back to Houston. That would be something. 
Brian McTaggart with MLB.com. Thanks very much for your time. Always a pleasure to chat with you. Uh, we appreciate you uh, making the time before opening day. And uh, thanks for listening to this Texas Sports Nation podcast. For more Houston sports coverage, you can go to HoustonChronicle.com.